such a bummer, kids. You have to stay. All right, we are finishing up our series today on, in the book of Acts. So you can turn to Acts 28, verse 17, page 937, if you're using the Bibles here. They're underneath the seats in front of you. They should be. Acts 28, verse 17. We'll read through the end of the chapter, and then uh, next week we plan, Lord willing, to start our series in the book of Daniel. So you'll want to be reading that, getting ready. I think we're excited, tentative, excited about this series, right, Jonathan? Acts 28, verse 17. Let's begin with prayer. Oh Lord God, we thank you for the light of your word. It shines upon us this morning. May we listen with open ears, with open eyes and minds, Lord. We want to see a glimpse of your glory and your purposes, your sovereignty in the life of your servant Paul. Lord, you kept your promises to him, and we trust in you, Lord, to keep also your promises to us and make us proclaimers of your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, Acts 28, beginning at verse 17. After three days, Paul called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, Though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty, because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore... I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil against you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are, for with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. And from morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull And with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. 
Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Amen. So if you will, go with me to a prison cell overlooking the temple in Jerusalem. It's Acts chapter 23. The Apostle Paul lies on the floor thinking through all that has happened over the past couple days. He was nearly done with his time in Jerusalem and then he would be off to Rome and to Spain beyond. New ministry frontiers. But then the riot in the temple two days ago, he was still hurting from being kicked and stomped on by the crowds. The Roman soldiers had arrived just in time. His speech before the Jews had driven them even more insane. The Roman centurion had nearly flogged him until he told him about his Roman citizenship. And then his defense before the Jewish council. <laughs> Maybe Paul was turning that very discussion over in his head as he laid there on the floor. Why did I say that? Ay, 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 the Sadducees went nuts when I mentioned the resurrection and Gamaliel's face through the whole thing. Whew. Where will this all end? But in that place, there appears to Paul the risen Jesus, standing by him and making him a promise. Just like you have in Jerusalem, you will testify about me in Rome. So, how do you think Paul envisions getting to Rome? Do you think he envisions the near assassination that's about to occur? later that evening the two to three years of, of legal wrangling with Felix and Festus the storm the shipwreck, the snake and arriving in Rome as a prisoner the Lord keeps his promise but perhaps not the way Paul expected things to go down maybe there are maybe there are promises you are waiting on the Lord for maybe you feel like you've been languishing in a jail cell or driven about by a storm and you're wondering how are the Lord's purposes being accomplished in my life through all of this well I think it's safe to say we probably won't get to our Rome the way we expect and when we get there as one commentator puts it the reality may not be as we had pictured and yet as we reflect on Paul's journey to this final section of Acts. We have a privileged position. We're looking back across all that has happened to bring him here. I think we can see clearly that God's way is always best. Maybe even Paul never got to see this quite as clearly as we can with our perspective. Now, there are at least three promises kept here at the end of Acts, and so we'll structure, I'll structure my sermon by looking at those promises uh, let's begin with Paul's promise kept. My first point, Paul's promise kept. 
Paul may not have arrived in Rome the way he envisioned, and he may be a bit more tired from the ride than he had hoped, but he doesn't let that get him down, right? He jumps right into ministry. Paul had written to the Romans some three years earlier about how he was planning to visit them. I don't know if he thought it would take three years, but at long last, he has kept his promise. Notice how in coming, he immediately keeps his other promise in Romans 1.16, to always preach the gospel first to the Jews, then to the Gentiles, right? And so we see within three days, he doesn't waste time. Within three days of arriving in Rome, he calls the Jews to his house. Paul is not afraid of conflict. He, he dives right in, not knowing what these Jews might have heard about him, what they might think about him. And, you know, at this point, I think we could hardly judge Paul if he decided he was done trying to convince the Jews. For the most part, they have not been very convincible. He's had many experiences trying to convince them. They've, they, in fact, they've, they've been after him wherever he's been around the world, right? Stirring up riots against him in various cities, trying to get him lynched in, in Jerusalem, trying to murder him, attacking him illegally again and again, even after multiple Roman authorities have said, this guy is innocent. Why spend time on these people when he knows, well, the Gentiles, they'll listen. I'll get an audience if I go to them. Well, we've seen it again and again with Paul. He loves his people. He loves his people. Love, that is the beginning of any evangelist. And so he loves even those who are stubborn, even those who are angry. Right? And he pursues them. We should be stirred up by his example. He shares the truth. Even with those who he knows, these Jews in Rome, he knows they will be a potential danger to him. They have been wherever he's gone. They may well not like him when he's done. But he gives it a good effort, a full day of expounding, testifying, and convincing. And then he moves on. And in verse 30, he welcomes all who come to him, Jew and Gentile. Now, to their credit, these Jews, they do appear willing to listen to Paul, right? Verses 21 to 22, they say, you know, they, they haven't heard anything about him. And they want to hear what he has to say. Now, it is a bit hard to believe they were quite as ignorant as they claimed. This is 60 AD here. This is, this is the timeline, 60 AD. Way back in 49 AD, the emperor Claudius had actually temporarily expelled all the Jews from Rome because they were arguing amongst themselves about Christianity, uh, this sect, that they, as they call it. So they, they, they've known about this for over a decade, and, and Paul's influence within Christianity would have been hard to miss. We already saw earlier in the chapter um, that there were enough Christians in Rome who knew about Paul that there were groups of them meeting him as he came to Rome. He wasn't exactly unknown in Rome. But whatever they do or they don't know about Paul, they do come. They do come to listen. And they come in great numbers, we're told, verse 23. And so Paul gives them his typical whole day treatment. He shows them from the scriptures that God's kingdom really has come with the coming of King Jesus. And verse 24 tells us some are convinced and some are not. This is what we should expect when the gospel is truly preached. Division. 
Remember, that's what Simeon had prophesied back when Jesus was born, back in Luke 2.34. He prophesied that Jesus would bring division. And we should expect this too. The people that hear what we have to say and then walk out. A, a church that offends everyone might just be offensive, but a church that offends no one is probably not preaching the gospel. To some, it smells sweet, but to others, it does not. Uh, to some, the gospel is a stumbling block. To some, the gospel is foolishness, but to us, it is the power of God for salvation. Now, as these divisions crystallize between Paul's audience, he tells them about another promise that is being kept here, right? In their midst, a promise made through Isaiah the prophet many years earlier. And so we turn to my second point, Isaiah's promise kept. Isaiah had told their forefathers through the Holy Spirit that they would not be able to hear or see God's words. God's words. And Paul says here in verses 25 to 28, this is true about you guys too. He applies these words of Isaiah to his audience. What Isaiah described here is, is something that one of my professors in seminary, Greg Beale, calls sensory organ malfunction language, which is just sort of a fancy way to say that these people are becoming deaf and blind to spiritual things. Dr. Beale goes on to describe how in the Bible, whenever we get this kind of sensory organ malfunction language, uh, it is God's judgment on people who worship idols. They actually become like their idols. God says to those who replace him with things that can't hear and can't see, you love these things better than me, you will join them in their deaf and blind state. And so Paul, by applying this quotation to the Jews, is accusing them of idolatry. He's saying, you claim to be worshipers of God, but you won't listen to what he says about Jesus, the one he calls you to worship, proving that you care more for things of the world than what I have to say to you. You're idolaters. This is a really solemn and scary scripture quotation to end the book of Acts on. It's, it's kind of like the final piece of this argument we've seen in the book of Acts that the Jewish people are, are no longer the heirs of God's kingdom. Rather, those who accept God's king, whether they be Jew or Gentile, they are heirs of his kingdom. I mean, think about this, right? Paul has spent the whole day 10 to 12 hours, trying to convince these people that Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior. But then he concludes by saying, you know, some of you actually cannot be convinced. Not because I haven't been convincing enough or you haven't been paying close enough attention, but you actually can't hear or see. Why? Because there are other things in your life that matter to you more than God. And he is judging you for your idolatry. 
it's kind of terrifying, isn't it? We, we like to think we're these really smart, rational people, you know? And if you just lay out all the facts for us, we can decide what the truth is. But the Bible teaches that when we turn away from God, our ability to understand spiritual things, it doesn't work so well anymore. This warning Paul shares with the Jews is for us as well. Let us not become dull to the words of God. Let us not fall into idolatry, turning away from worshiping the living and the true God to worship things that do not see, do not hear. You know the idols you turn to. They may not look like the pagan gods of old, but you make them just the same. Your houses, your careers, your dreams, your health. Psalm 115, they do not speak. Do not see, do not hear, do not feel, do not walk. But those who make them and trust in them become like them. Idolatry is the deep substructure for all our sins beneath any sinful action or reaction in your life is an idol. But as Paul points out, with these verses from Isaiah, the worst part of idol worship is how it turns us away from God's healing. And notice that at the end of verse 27, how these people are unable to receive God's healing. Because the opposite of, of worshiping idols, which leads to ruin, which leads to sensory organ malfunction, is worshiping God, which leads to healing. And there's actually hope hiding beneath these solemn verses, you see, because this whole becoming like what you worship thing, it cuts both ways. Whatever the image is that you adore, you come to resemble it. When we worship idols, we come to resemble them, and that leads us to ruin like these Jews. But when we worship Jesus Christ, who is the image of God himself, we come to resemble him. The image of God is restored in us. Worshiping idols ruins the image of God in us. Worshiping Christ restores the image. One place we see this idea developed is Romans 12, 1 to 2. Paul there urges Christians to offer their bodies in true worship. And so be transformed. Through worship, be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Or Romans 8, 29, where we are taught that God's purpose for his people is to, to conform them to the image of Christ so that Christ might be the firstborn among many brethren, so that we might come to look like him. God is working in his people to make us like Christ when we worship him. What Paul offers the people of Rome as he begins his ministry is the same choice that is still offered today. It's a question of allegiance. Who will you worship? The image you choose to revere will lead you into ruin or restoration. Well, we want to turn finally to see how God's promise to Paul is kept because, of course, none of these other promises can come true without God being at work. This is my third point, God's promise kept. You know, one of the things you may have noticed in these final seven or so chapters of Acts is how much things slow down 
Uh, maybe you noticed this as we've been working through these. Luke gives an extensive amount of detail surrounding Paul's final days in Jerusalem, his arrest, his many trials. I think there's like five. And of course, his journey to Rome, right? We saw in great detail this journey to Rome. And, and so the, the book of Acts here at the end almost begins to feel a little bit like a biography of Paul. Right? We're following his story so closely, we almost forget that it was about a lot of other things in the beginning. And I think what Luke is doing is he's, he's really drawing us into Paul's experience of getting to Rome. He's slowing things down and showing us what it feels like to wait on God's promises, which come in unexpected ways. If we were traveling along with Paul, there would, there would be so many moments when we would think, there is no way we are going to make it to Rome. I mean, these, there's those desperate first days in Jerusalem when there are multiple attempts to kill Paul. There's those boring two to three years when he's stuck in Caesarea being trotted out by various Roman governors like a pet pony to do, you know, tricks for his guests. I mean... But Paul doesn't complain, and I'm, I'm sure he found ways to use that time, but that must have been terrible. Thinking about all the churches he could be planting in Spain when he's there entertaining these loathsome governors. Maybe you've waited for what seems like forever to God, for God to move in your life. Don't let that time be wasted. Don't give up on God's promises to give you ways to glorify him. And then, you know, Paul heads out on this voyage. And again, I mean, there are, there are points where literally everyone has given up hope of survival, except, except Paul. He gives us this shining example of what a Christian can be in the midst of a world where people are just so pessimistic and, and hopeless. I'm sure you've heard it. We just started a new year, right? Oh, so many bad things happened this year. There's just nothing to be hopeful about with your neighbors, at work, at the hair salon. But this is not how it has to be. Even in darkness, light shines for the upright. Hope that is set on this life alone is indeed pitiable. It is futile. But hope that is eternal, that is founded on the resurrection, is immovable. Read 1 Corinthians 15 to start your new year. Well, but Paul finally makes it to Malta. He crawls out of the waves, and a viper bites him. You could almost imagine him shouting to God. He doesn't do this, but you could almost imagine him shouting to God, Seriously, Lord? When is it enough? This viper hanging off my arm. Have I suffered enough? <laughs> Maybe this is how you feel when you get that medical diagnosis. When you fall into that sin again. When that relationship breaks down again. Lord, why does it have to be this way? Those are the moments when we get the chance to walk with Paul under the shadow of the cross. And not just Paul, because Paul can only be a good example for us, but also with Jesus himself. Who can do more than be an example for us, who can actually give us grace for 
those moments. Grace to sustain us when nothing else would keep us going. Grace to believe in God's promises. When no one else believes, the storm will end. In a few moments, we'll receive that grace in the Lord's Supper. You know, even as Paul finally reaches Rome to begin proclaiming God's kingdom there, there's one final twist to his story. Paul probably doesn't come to Rome the way he wanted to, preaching in the forums before crowds of people, planting a couple churches, then rushing on to the next place. No, he comes chained to a Roman soldier. You see, we miss the Lord's work in our lives sometimes because we didn't expect the Roman soldier to be there. What's he doing there? God, that wasn't part of the plan. I mean, my plan. But God's way is always better. Do you know? You can go to Rome today. You can visit the imperial barracks where these soldiers who were chained to Paul lived. And in that barracks, there's a little patch of plaster with some graffiti scratched on it. A man on a cross with a donkey's head and another man kneeling before that cross with the words scrawled below it, Anaximanus worships his God. Someone insulting another soldier who had become a Christian. But how beautiful is that? Blessed be that soldier long ago who bore the shame of bowing to Christ. He has received his reward, brothers and sisters. And maybe it was Paul who first showed him what it looked like to get on his knees and pray to the Savior who died on the cross for him. In what other context would a Roman soldier listen to a Jewish rabbi uh, Paul wrote in Philippians 1.12, what has happened to me, being imprisoned in Rome, has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Then he goes on. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. This is how God answers, keeps his promises. Isn't this wonderful? Who, who knew that all it took to get people to take evangelism seriously is just have your best evangelist get arrested? But God knew. This is exactly what needs to happen. Paul can't do it all. For the gospel to spread to the ends of the world, what does Paul need? He needs the church to take on this work. And you know what? I'm sure some of you noticed. It feels like the book of Acts doesn't end right because it doesn't tell us what happens to Paul, right? But that is surely by design because it's not actually about Paul. Uh, Luke refers to a period of two years, right, where as if something happens at the end of those two years, but he doesn't tell us what that is because he's actually not writing a biography about Paul's life. He's writing about the spread of the good news of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And that kingdom is still being proclaimed. And so the book of Acts ends with it being proclaimed with all boldness 
and without hindrance, as if to say, to be continued. Right? That's really how Acts ends. The Acts of the Apostles to be continued in the Acts of Christ's disciples throughout all time until the gospel of this kingdom is proclaimed to the ends of the earth. Will you take up the promises of God that Paul and Peter and Stephen and all the rest relied upon so consistently and will you continue that task? That that is certainly the question the book of Acts leaves us with. Will the Acts of Christ's apostles continue in the Acts of Christ's disciples? This is no small task but one the Lord strengthens us for. And so we turn now to the Lord's Supper. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we thank you for the book of Acts and its challenge to us to follow after our King and his disciples in proclaiming your kingdom to the nations. We have, O Lord, we know an eternal hope that is based on your promises. And we know, oh Lord, you are the promise keeper. We've seen it here in the life of Paul, how you keep your promises, even in ways that Paul might not have expected, Lord, but which were better. Even, Lord, you are the promise keeper in how you keep this stern promise of Isaiah, that those who turn away from you will become like the idols they worship. Oh Lord, keep us from that place. We want to be worshipers of you and embrace the healing, the restoration that comes. And we thank you now as we turn to the Lord's Supper that you give your people grace to worship you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If the elders who are